Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. I am John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to have you here joining me in the Live Inspired movement. On every Live Inspired podcast episode, I have amazing guests joining me to share their story, their successes, their failures, their lessons, ultimately their lives. But more than just hearing about their lives, you're going to hear some real tangible ideas to take back, to put into practice, and ultimately to apply in your own life. Before we bring on the guest today, and I cannot wait to bring on the guest today, I just encourage you to check out our social media feeds, our videos, my book on fire, and everything else. We have it all available for you on our primary website, including past podcasts. You'll find that at John O'Leary Inspires. Dot com. One more time, that's John O'Leary Inspires.com. I'm going to take you way back now to high school. I'm, I'm asking, raise your hand when this applies. Do you remember reading The Great Gatsby? I would imagine many of us. The Catcher in the Rye. Maybe The World According to Garp. The, the, these incredible novels that, for many of us, it, it helped shape our childhood, our adolescency, and our lives. Well, one of the books that shaped mine was this little book called Jonathan Siegel, a book that I've learned recently shaped not only my life, but a whole lot of other lives. And here's the awesome news. The author of this little book is with us on the podcast today. His name is Richard David Bach. He is one of my heroes. He's a guy I look up to, and I'm honored to introduce him to our community. So my friends, get ready for it. He's a barnstormer, he's a pilot, he's a writer, he's a gentleman, he's a friend, and now he's with us in studio. So buckle up, open up your journals and your hearts and your minds for our newest friend, Richard Bach. Richard, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Wow, thank you, thank you. What a That's a wonderful introduction. I guess I can leave now after having said that. <laughs> no, that, that's just the starting point. Now the good news is I be quiet and sit back and take notes with everybody else. So oh my. I've done my job. Now it's your turn to do yours. <laughs> okay. Richard, for the six listeners who have not heard of you, do me a favor. Give them a, a little bit of a better introduction. T t tell me about what you are up to today. I'm up to discovering who we really are. Uh, I'm fascinated with the spiritual side of this lifetime. This lifetime is, is, is an interesting thing. We get to do all kinds of things. We get to learn all kinds of things. We, 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 we learn to fail things, too. Mm. Um, but there's something beyond that that's absolutely fascinating for me and I'm, and um, <laughs> and that that's what I'm doing that's what I've been doing for a long time and, and uh since you brought up the words long time we're going to go there man i i believe you were born and correct me if i'm wrong and uh cut me off if uh, if it's inappropriate on june 23rd 1936 is that correct that is correct that so, is you have been doing life for a long time, and, and I can't wait to hear about your adventures, your writing, what the books meant, and uh, even what you hope to be creating going forward. But I want to go back to your childhood, because I, I don't know much about your upbringing. Where were you born, and what was life like in the, in, in the late 30s where you were born? Oh, let's see. That was—I um, don't remember a lot about uh, Oak Park, Illinois, Um Let's see. Uh, and and I, I kind of became aware uh, of this lifetime in, in the Arizona desert. Hmm. And uh, there was just when, when the Second World War was, was starting, and both my parents were in the Army. My dad was a, a chaplain, hmm. and uh, my mom was in the Red Cross, and they were... Uh, uh, um, required to uh, uh, come to a, a, a little 
place called uh, Fort Huachuca, Arizona. Mm-hmm. It's north of Tucson, and and the only place that they could find to live was this. They they just found this little ranch. It was way out in the middle of nowhere, and and that for me was important because at that little ranch there was a a windmill that pumped water from way in the ground up to a a tank, and in order to reach the tank and find out how much water you had, you had to climb up this ladder <laughs> and peek over the side of it. And I was terrified with heights. Yes. And I knew that if I if I if I if I climbed up that ladder, that one of one of the the, the wooden um, uh, steps was going to fall off. And I would tumble all the way down to the ground. And I just, I was, nevertheless, while I climbed up there, what I saw mm. was so beautiful. I could look over the, over the uh, ranch house and see the mountains and see this vast, vast land around me. And that was so beautiful. It was my attempt to find heaven, just to get as high as I could, mm. terrified as I was, because it had to be it had to be so beautiful, and somehow that I could feel my life begin. Yes, I didn't know what it meant, and what it meant was these unbelievable coincidences. I. I my my family never had much money and flying was way too expensive mm-hmm. for me and when i'm uh i i had my my first uh first semester of uh college i took a course in archery and standing next to me was a, a stranger um uh, and we just kind of silently shot arrows toward this yes this hay bale and and a little airplane flew over just as he was uh, was uh flexing that bow in order to to short it, uh, to shoot an arrow and he looked he stopped and he looked up <laughs> at that airplane and i said just as a, a, a way of being funny i said i'll bet i'll I bet you've got a, a little airplane, and you want someone to come and wash and polish it every week, and you'll give him you'll give him a lesson every week. Ha 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 ha! And he looked at me in the strangest way, and he said, "How did you know?" <laughs> because he had just been uh, uh, up up for his flight instructor uh, rating, and he needed to have a student to test with. Richard, how old were you when you're shooting arrows and uh, and trying to was, get yourself out of this plane? I was 18 years old. 18 years old. And and I went out there and I washed and I polished his little luscum. It was a beautiful little airplane, little two-place thing. And uh, and and we went up to fly. Richard, how, how did a boy terrified of climbing the little well ladder become a young man who was audacious enough back then man flying was not super safe uh, audacious is is the is the word to say uh that's that's for sure i was i was terrified i bet especially when he, he got to the point where he said okay well now now let's learn about spins oh jeez oh no and, and uh i did i did what was was required cuz i'd been learning as much as i could about flying and I pulled that control stick back, and I stomped on one rudder, and wham, we went round and round. And I recovered from that, and, and <laughs> I was just out of breath. And he said, that's good. Now let's try a uh, spin to the left. <laughs> and uh, somehow that was love, and that was my, my, my really first choice of heaven. Mm. <laughs> And I ran away from college. I joined the Air Force as an aviation cadet. I went through all this stuff that the military gives you. Uh, 
I I began to fly single engine airplanes. I, I flew uh, an F eighty six and and then I was uh, uh, I was uh, uh, transferred to uh, an F one hundred school, and then the Air Force said we've got too many single engine pilots. And I was uh, I had a job as a supply officer just north of Reno, State Air Force Base in, uh, in Nevada. And there were, there were uh, a few little T-33s that mm. we could buy, or we could fly. Uh, but that was the end of it for me. And I finally said to the Air Force, look, you don't need me. Yes. Just let me go. And they said, okay. And then I was uh, a civilian again. But I had this love of flying. And uh, I, I really didn't know what to do. I, I tried some jobs, and I, I recognized that I couldn't hold a job. I was a uh, draftsman at a uh, boat building company, and I quit that. And I was an editor in, on a, a flying magazine. I quit that. And... Uh, and then I, I realized that I couldn't hold a job. And what was I going to do? This was a, an inflection point for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. How was I going to survive? Mm-hmm. And I remembered when I was in high school, I, I took a, a course in creative writing because I didn't like uh, the course in uh, American literature. <laughs> and uh, I thought this would be an easy, easy, easy class. And the first day, John Gartner, ah, what a wonderful man, said, I know why you're here. <laughs> and he said, the only way you're going to get an A from me in this class is to show me the check of something, some story that you've written this semester. And we all said, oh, that's not fair. We're just little kids. And he said, there's nothing wrong with a B. But I, I, I loved grades. I, yes. I wanted to, I wanted to get an A there, and so sure enough, I wrote a story about a little uh, telescope club that uh, was was in that town, and it sold to the newspaper, and I got a check of thirty four dollars. There you go, man. It and started I, I small. The, I slammed that down on his desk and said, "There," and he said, "Okay." You you don't have to do anything now. You can just you can sleep if you want to do, but you've got your A, and that was wonderful. That took took me back to the time where I said, "How can I survive?" Mm. And something said, "You can be a writer." <laughs> I said, "Oh God, is that true?" And it said, "Yes, that's the only way you'll survive." Mm. And I did that, and I had this absolutely strange event i was walking at night in this little this little village belmont shore and uh, i was wondering how i was going to pay the rent and several times in my life i've heard a voice and this was the first one and the voice said jonathan livingston seagull and i was terrified. I, I, I knew there was nobody with me, and I looked around, and sure enough, there was nobody with me, but it was as if, I, as if someone had said that to, uh, just, just behind mm-hmm. me and to the right, and I, <laughs> I went home <laughs> saying, what's going yes. on? I locked the door. I, I sat in my, my little office and said, what does this mean? What's a Jonathan Livingston Seagull? And at that time, the wall disappeared, and there was this huge cinerama vision. And I was way up in the air, and here was this little seagull. <laughs> and I was fascinated. Oh, that must be a Jonathan Livingston Seagull. And something said, Richard, instead of just watching this, why don't you write it down as it happened? And I did. I, 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 I grabbed a green ballpoint pen and, and just wrote on some old scrap paper. 
And and this whole story began up until the point where he was thrown out. And then it suddenly stopped. And the wall was no screen anymore. It was just a wall. And there was no... no I I did not what had happened and I said I don't I don't care what happened I can finish this story I love this little seagull Now R- Richard you know this is the late 60s a lot of my listeners are saying dude we have a feeling this was a a, a drug enhanced vision that our brother might have received and yet <laughs> clearly not So absolutely not I'm, I have I have never taken any drug well when I was in the hospital they forced me to take some but uh, uh, no, n- never any any recreational drugs. Uh, I'm, I just despise them. Right, you, you're but, a super aware yeah, guy, man. and you're a seeker. You hear the voice. You have this crazy vision. You don't even yeah. know what it means yet. Yeah, where, where is this coming from? Not now that you're looking back on it with a, you know five six decades oh, of insight. Where is this coming from? If you want me to look back on from just the recent events in my life. I'd have to say it was my guardian angel. And for all these years, for 70-some years, I didn't believe in guardian angels. I had all these these events, these things that uh, saved my life, and I thought, boy, that was a lucky yes. coincidence. Yes. And I never thought about a guardian. Now, there's no question. I think all of us have a guardian angel. Richard, for those who haven't, uh, bumped into it, and my hope is after this show they will that they'll check it out immediately. It's it's worthy. But for those who haven't, give us the cliff note version of what this your first real big book is all about. Um, here's a little seagull who loves to fly more than anything. He loves to fly. He doesn't care about um, the flock, about going to fishing boats and 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 grabbing a little piece of bread or an old fish. He just loves to fly. And he gets really good at flying. And he can fly at extreme speeds. And because of this, he's thrown out of the flock. Hmm. And he has to live by himself at the lonely cliffs. And and that's kind of the end of part one. Mm-hmm. And then there's a couple parts after there. What happens after he dies, so-called dies? Um, and that, <laughs> that's a short story with a, with a, a long time to, uh, yeah. <laughs> to talk about. <laughs> yes, it's nuanced. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I uh, sent the story out, and sure enough, it was rejected. And it was rejected again, and it was rejected again. I finally got a rejection slip that had a note on the bottom of it. And I said, oh, well, maybe this means something. I read the note, and it said, oh, dear, no, Mm. exclamation point. And that took 18 rejections. And I I finally got it back from my... my, uh, uh, my my presence in in New York. Yes, and uh, he said, "Well, look, uh, it, it, I've tried it on every publisher in New York City, and nobody wants it. So time time for you to write something else." And uh, in the same mail, I, I was walking out to my little mailbox, and there were two pieces of of uh, of mail there. One was, was this, was from my, my agent saying, I can't sell this book. Yeah. And the other was a letter from Eleanor Frieda at Macmillan saying, Dear Richard Bach, I've read some of your articles. And I wonder if you have a manuscript that's not committed to another publisher. And if so, I'd like to see it. Macmillan had already rejected <laughs> Jonathan Siegel. I didn't care. I sent it immediately right. to Eleanor, and she said, this is wonderful. I, I love this story. She went into an editorial meeting, and uh, she told them about this. And they said, that's not the little talking right. seagull, is yes. it? And she said, you bet it is, and I'm going to publish it. 
And they said, okay, okay, if you insist, but just don't spend too much money on it. And sure enough, she published that thing. And And Richard, it it didn't have high hopes at first. I I understand she only published maybe 5,000 copies or so. Exactly right. 5,000 copies. And... uh, and she said, do you mind if, if you don't take much money for this? I said, I don't care. I, I'll do it for free. I just want this thing published. She said, well, we can't do it for free, but uh, I'll give you $2,000 for it. I said, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. And the, the, the book went out, and, uh, and I put an ad in a, in a, a flying newspaper called, called Trade a Plane, Saying you can get your your copies of uh, Jonathan Siegel uh, signed from me if you just send me an envelope and five dollars. <laughs> so I began uh, sending out these inscribed books, and uh, and then a strange thing happened that someone who bought one book would send back and say, "Okay, give yes. me five more books." And that happened over and over. And then I noticed Eleanor was saying, uh, well, we need to have a second printing. Mm. And that went on until, well, there was, there was a time when there were just millions of books. I mean, literally millions of books. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for, I don't know, two years, yes. something like that. And... Um, and that little story, I, I didn't know, when, when I finished it, when I sent it uh, out to a publisher, I wasn't quite sure who to say the author was, because I didn't invent this story. It, it just, bam, it was just handed to me. Mm. And, uh, but the, the, there's a thing that says, okay, who's the author? And I had to put my name there, yeah, own it. because they, they wouldn't say... Uh, it was my guardian angel, <laughs> uh, and at that time I didn't even believe in guardian angels, so I put my name there, and uh, that that story was uh, later translated into yes. I don't know fifty languages, and uh, and 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 that was the the start of this time uh, uh, from a disaster. Um, I, I I had a, a a belief that time, and I still have that that belief that uh, uh, disasters can be blessings always, and blessings can be disasters always. <laughs> if somebody paradoxically, yeah, uh huh, you can you can have this great blessing and really screw it up. At the same time, you can have a really screwed up event in your life. And it turns out to be a blessing, and, I, and you know that, too. You told me a little bit, just in conversation, before we started recording about your brother, and, and um, yeah, to just talk to me and, and our friends listening about your brother and, and what he was like and, and um, what happened to your brother. Yeah. My brother Roy was eight years older than I was, so he was 18 when I was 10, and I was always in his way. And he he loved working on cars, and he'd ask me for a wrench, and I'd give him the wrong wrench, and he said, "Oh, Dicky," and uh, I, I was just a bother for him. And shortly after that, he joined the army, and uh, he went to Korea, and in Korea, uh, I hope I keep my voice here. Uh, he saved. Two people who were working with him, the, his position was overrun. Mm. He said, you guys get out of here. And they ran away, and he stayed there, and he had a machine gun, and, uh, and, he, and finally he, he ran too, and he was hit by some shrapnel, and he, he got uh, a medal for that, for saving these guys, and saving himself at that time. And, uh, and he came back, and he was the dearest, sweetest 
brother I've ever had. It, he's just, uh, that had changed him, uh, at least as far as I was, I was yes. concerned. He valued me, and I valued him. And we were brothers all the way and, and, until he died. It was just... <sighs> well, I brought it up because you mentioned a moment ago that our, our screw-ups, our tragedies are frequently our blessings. And yeah, my understanding of your relationship with your brothers through this tr- tragic event, you know, re- receiving a purple heart and being wounded and, and transformed physically and emotionally forever yep. is one of the things that brought you together at a deeper level than you'd ever been before. That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. When you pen a book like the one you wrote, Jonathan Siegel, and you, you churn out 5,000 copies and you get rich with that $2,000 check, and now you start shipping them off one at a time, signing yeah. the books for five bucks. What, what are you, when you're sitting back and you're dreaming big about what can happen, what were you hoping might happen through that book? <laughs> I was hoping that maybe a few readers would become, well, it, it actually happened, would have become my family. Yeah. <laughs> they're the people who find, there's a lot of people who, who read that book and they say, oh, this doesn't, I, I, this doesn't make any sense at all. I don't, I don't get it. Yeah, there but are. The, the people who do get it, they are truly a family for me, and they're all around the world. I get letters from them every day, uh, emails now, um, of of how this book has changed their lives. Yes, and that's 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 my mission on this life. Somehow, is to through the ideas that I write, can that change other people? Mm. And there's a few people who are changed, and that's my mission. That's what I'm here for. And Richard, you may not know this, but not only was I dramatically impacted through your work but one of my colleagues todd sashray who i know is listening he is a huge 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 fan of yours he's one of the other guys that said we need to have him on our live inspired podcast so (laughs) you're here in part because of todd but then really the reason you're on with us today besides you saying yes i i'd love to is i've had several guests who have been asked the question what's your favorite book What's your favorite book? And you hear Man's Search for Meaning and, and Holy Scripture, and you hear a whole lot of the books that come up again and again and again, but your book has come up at least two separate times, maybe three separate times, as a book from these incredible individuals that, that transformed them and shaped oh, them into the guys or gals they became. Isn't that great? <laughs> that is so wonderful. Thank you for saying that. When people come to the end of, your, of that first book, wow. What do you hope they leave with? Besides, you have a new friend. But yeah. when, as a reader, what do you hope that, that my kids who are moving into middle school or adults who are listening right now who may check out your work, what do you hope they might receive? I think there's, there's one line in Jonathan Seagull, and it's uh, something like, uh, you have the freedom to be yourself your true self here and now and nothing can stand in your way and that even when I think about that that touches me nothing can stand in the way of becoming who I really am and for me that's meant writing books for other people it will be anything it will be Oh, you know, whatever they love. Why do you think the flock, and uh, we can talk about seagulls if you'd like, or we can talk about human beings if you prefer, but why do you think the flock wants us to fly information and and keep it slow down, keep it low, don't have high expectations, don't imagine transforming the world through your life, don't imagine being fully content and completely comfortable in your own skin? What? What, what is it about that flock mentality that you write about so frequently that it means lowers order us? for the flock and whoever governs the flock feels comfortable that there's not going to be sudden changes and yet hmm. in our heart we love the changes we love discovering 
this new element of who we are. We've got powerful, powerful abilities to change the world. <laughs> and maybe that's not exactly what the, what the flock wants to hear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, sometimes they're very distressed on us, and sometimes they just kick, kick us out. And uh, so I guess everyone who, who has this experience has had that experience of being thrown out, of saying, ah, okay, I can't depend on the flock yes. for my life. I have to stand on my own feet. I have to make my own choice. And in fact, that's something that, that you said uh, in, in your book. You said, it's my choice, not yours. Mm-hmm. And that is absolutely true. Uh, I had, at the end of all my my flying experiences about five years ago, yes. I, I had a crash in my, my little airplane. I was by myself. I didn't, I was landing at this little field way out in the middle of nowhere, and, and I, I didn't see the wires. And so the airplane just pitched down and, crashed upside down but for me as 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 a pilot feeling that i didn't i didn't i didn't see that at all i just kept right on flying right to the point where the 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 wheels were going to touch the ground and then uh, then everything was black for a little while and then i was in the air again over this beautiful country (laughs) it's absolutely stunning to see and uh after just a few minutes, um, somebody, I don't know who, somebody said, uh, do you want to return to your life on earth? <laughs> and I said, my life on earth? Are, aren't I in my life on earth right now? Or, uh, I didn't know how to answer. Yes. And, it, and it asked that question again. Do you want to return to your life on earth? And uh, I was just silent, and they said it again, and I finally said, yes. And when I said yes, bam, I opened my eyes. I had been in a coma for a week. I opened my eyes, and th- there was, there was my, my wife, Sabrina. She was sitting right next to me in this hospital bed, and I said, what's happened? Yes. And... She said, uh, everything's okay, and, uh, and I had a, a friend came in later, and I said, well, what's happened to my little airplane? What's happened to Puff? Yes. And he said, uh, uh, well, yeah, she's, she scratched a little bit. <laughs> what he meant was there were pieces all over yes. that, that field where she crashed, and he had picked her up and put her in the hangar. And uh, and I I couldn't walk. Uh, my uh, Sabrina taught me how to read a clock, <laughs> and uh, uh, and very gradually I I uh, improved. There was a lot of prayer involved with that, and. Um, I, I just really wanted to get out of there, and finally they said, oh, "Okay, you can leave here." And I did. And then when I was home, I gradually learned how to walk, and uh, <laughs> and in a very short while, I was walking very well. And um, and then after that, I took took the pieces of the little airplane <laughs> and drove them all the way across the country to Florida where the, the guy who built her rebuilt her. And I, I flew back all oh the way gosh. across the United not, States again. I did not know that you got back in the plane. Oh, yeah. So you, yeah. you do you still fly? Um, I did till maybe two years ago. Um, I was on final approach, and again... I heard a voice that said, this will be your last flight. <laughs> and I said, uh, huh. 
but I, <laughs> but, right. but I was I kind of concentrated and made a good landing and taxied to the to the hangar, and sure enough, I've never flown since then. Uh, for me, it was a miracle. Are, are you the kind of guy, Richard, that as you look through the lens of your life, you just see miracles all around you? Not all around me, because I'm slow to learn anything. But sometimes they are so intense that there's no question that they, that they are miracles. Uh, when I was, um, uh, when I was in, in France, um, there was, uh, there was the Berlin crisis and my air national guard unit was, uh, was reactivated and sent to France. And we were playing war games with the German, uh, German army, uh, just for, for practice. And we didn't have any, any ammunition in, in the, in the car we had uh, in the, in the airplanes. We just had, uh, uh cameras. And, um, so there was a, some tanks coming up here and the forward air controller who was on the ground said, um, we, we got some tanks. Uh, did you see them? And, uh, and we said, yeah, we, we got them. And there were, there were a flight of four of us. I said, okay, uh, take them out. So we went down as, as low as we could. That was an important thing to say at that time, to yes. have really low and just take cameras of the, uh, of the tanks. And um, I was about ready to turn in uh, on this, this uh, this uh, on this tank, and uh, somebody said, "Start your pull out early." And I I couldn't believe that. I, this, this is a this is an airplane with one seat, mm-hmm. and it wasn't on the radio. And I said, "Well, I'm not going to do the pull out at all. I'm pulling up right now." And as I did, the airplane, which was an F eighty four F. Uh, it didn't climb. I pulled the nose up, and it was like exactly the the reverse of what had happened before to me. That it, there was something that the air was just descending like crazy, and I said, "Holy cats!" And a, a full throttle, and pulled the nose way up. And sure enough, I, I missed the tank, and I missed the trees. And if I hadn't heard that. I'd still be on a yes. tree right now in in southern Germany. And that was that was a miracle. And uh, this and late when I was flying civilian airplanes, I was flying a little old biplane and hopping uh, passengers. And I landed on this little grass strip and the same voice said move to the right. <laughs> and I, I j- immediately did that. I just stomped on the the right right rudder pedal uh, as as we were landing, and uh, and as soon as I I moved to the right, I, there was just a flash of an airplane landing on the same mm. runway in the in the opposite direction, and I said, "Oh my God!" And uh, if I if I hadn't Moved to the right, there would have been a collision. Died, right? Right. It was a calm day, and a, 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 a little airport, so there, there was no control tower or any such thing. You just you decide to to uh, to fly in the in the direction that you want to fly on this on this runway. Uh, so that that was a miracle. Um, Richard, it's it's been a lifetime of of miracles that. Yes. I, I think in all of our lives, they're there if you have eyes to see and ears to hear. But the amazing thing about you is you, you hear it and you listen to it and then you share it, which is so inspiring. When when people read your work, I mean, d- dozens of books now. And my buddy Todd, I think, has read every one of your works. But oh. when, when people read your stuff, sum up for me in just a couple sentences what you hope they really receive. What is it that they that that is different about them after they put one of your books back down. We're so much more than mortals 
suffering on this <laughs> on this planet. We're so much more than that. We have an identity as a spiritual uh, soul, and that soul has the job to become one with love. Mm. And that's I, I disagree with you when you say we have we have one life lifetime. Um, uh, for me, I'm so slow to learn. I need lots of lifetimes in order to become one with love. And um, that's been the most important lesson in my life, is that it really doesn't matter what we do. It matters how much we love. And I've, I've failed at that time and time, and I'm just beginning to recognize that's 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 the truth for me. I I I need to I need to express love in everything I do. Well, you may need several lifetimes to f- figure that out, but I the, the good news for you, my friend, is you've had several lifetimes since 1936. You've had <laughs> some amazing chances. And you've harnessed them. No one does it perfectly, but you certainly have harnessed them. them. And, and Richard, we're going to shift gears just a little bit sure. into what we call the Live Inspired Seven. Th- these are seven questions that all all of our friends have been asked and have answered on this podcast. So I'm going to begin with number one. I think it's a layup question for a guy like yourself. But what is the best book you've ever read? <laughs> uh was a book that was that was given to me, and the name is Jonathan Livingston Seagull. <laughs> <laughs> no one saw that coming. <laughs> That's not even bragging because I, I realize you give credit uh, to others for the for that. But that awesome. Uh, second question is this: Tomorrow, you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at a hundred and three, leaving you, my friend, with millions and millions of dollars. What would you do with that newfound wealth? Let's see. If I had a, a million dollars, well, first I'd I'd have to pay the government, right? I'd have to pay. Uh, this is tax free gifting, tax- so you don't owe a penny oh, oh, it's to Uncle Sam. Free? This is all tax. It's just oh gifted. It's God. a miracle. I I can't imagine the number of chocolates that I could buy with millions of dollars. Um. Um, my own uncle, uh, uncle was uh, uh, Marcus Bach, and he he traveled. And he wrote like forty some books. And the only inheritance I received from him, in fact, the only inheritance I received from anyone, is the time that I've had to be with him, mm. to listen to him, to read his books to learn from what he had to tell me. And I think that's that's an inheritance that matters. That's wealth. A, any money can can just vaporize. Believe me, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> that's your next book. We can write about that one. <laughs> well, you, you've received now true wealth, and uh, you, you're teaching about it. Uh, the the third question, and I think it kind of goes back to this idea of, of being vaporized in some regards. But if your house caught fire, and, and your bride, and your family, and the animals, all living things, the seagulls, okay. everything is out, and you have an opportunity to go in and grab one thing, and you have to go. <laughs> so you can't say, I'd let it all burn. You, you, you got to go in and grab one item. What would you come out with, Richard? House is fire. House on fire. I have to go. Uh, I'd get uh, uh, dog food, a package of marshmallows, and a fork. <laughs> uh, tell me, tell me about the fork, the marshmallows, and the dog food. Uh, because I, I, I wouldn't be able to even feed my little puppies, and I, I love them. So I'd have to get dog food. Uh, there's nothing in that house that matters so i might as well 
toast marshmallows <laughs> while it burns. Uh, th- my original friend, uh, that's the first time I've ever heard anyone share that, so thank you for your continued originality. <laughs> the seagull continues to fly in its own direction. <laughs> All right, if you could sit on a bench, and I understand, by the way, you, your home is lovely, and it's it's just a beautiful, you're in paradise in some regards. Yes. But if you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anybody, living or dead, who would you want to spend that long afternoon with? Living or dead? Yes. Ray Bradbury. Tell me about Ray. My God. He wrote, uh, I think, 38 books, including uh, Dandelion Wine. He wrote a book called Zen in the Art of Writing. And I got to meet him because I loved his books. I got to meet him just before my very first book, which is a a book about flying. Mm -hmm. Um, I hadn't even sent it out, but I wrote a letter to Ray saying thank you, Mm because I I listened to a a lecture that he gave, and it was just so inspiring to me that I I just owed him a, a lot, and I just wanted to say thank you to him. And I sent that off. I was in France at the time, and I sent that to him. And uh, two weeks later, I got a two-page letter <laughs> from Ray that he had typed out himself. And he said, uh, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. He said, if you're ever in Los Angeles... Please look me up. And he gave his address. And sure enough, a few years later, I, I was there. <laughs> and I, I had his address. Right. And I, I walked up on, on the, the uh, and I knocked on the door. Mm. And the door opened just a little crack. And he looked out at me through his glasses. And... He was going to say, I, I don't need anything. And I said, Ray, it's me. It's Richard Bach. And wham, the door opened. He ran out on the porch and he hugged me. And he said, come in, come in, come in. We went down to his basement where he writes. He had all these amazing artifacts of, of the, he loved masks and and dinosaur models and all this kind of thing. Mm. And we talked and talked and talked. And yeah, I'd, I'd like to... Have a nice conversation oh. with Ray. Yes. Thank you. What What is the best advice, whether it came from Ray or any of your other teachers or voices, but what is the best advice you've ever received? Follow your highest right. Tell me what that means to you. That means within ourselves, we decide the very best thing to do in any situation. Don't listen to anybody else saying, oh, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. Just do the thing that you know is right. And I think, uh, I think we'll have a fairly happy life if we, if we follow that. <laughs> What would, looking back on it now, five decades ago, but what would you have told your 20-year-old self? Um, I'd say uh, try to fail <laughs> at anything you don't care about. If you don't care about it, why are you, why are you being successful at it? Find out what you love and be successful at expressing that. Mm, Beautifully said. That's what I'd say. The seventh question, and and somehow, Richard Bach, you have run the gauntlet, you've made it through, but the seventh and final question, it's one of my favorites. (laughs) It has been said that all great pilots, 
men, authors, put the titles in there that you'd like, can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? <laughs> one sentence? Uh, let's see. Uh, Richard Bach uh, loved the sky and and with his books he brought us there. Mm. Something like that. Richard Bach, you do indeed love the sky. You've taught the rest of us to love it and to soar with you. And it is my belief that the next time you hear a voice, it's going to be the words, well done, good and faithful servant. <laughs> you, you, uh, you're, an, you're an awesome example, and I, I really have been looking forward to this time, and it did not disappoint. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. What a delight. You know, we could... It, it's like with Ray Bradbury, we could talk. Yeah. We could talk <laughs> right. way past midnight. <laughs> well, here, here's my promise. What I, I know where you live, and I won't say it on air, but next time I'm in your area, I'll be the guy knocking at your door. You'll be oh. ready to shut it on my face, and then I'll say, uh, Richard, Richard, it's, it's me. It's John O'Leary. <laughs> my hope is you don't slam the door, but you open it wide and you give me a big oh, hug. I will open that door wide. Welcome, welcome. Hey, brother, it has been a treat, my friend. So I I will look forward to that visit. And my friends tuning in, that was one of my favorite authors and favorite guys, Richard David Bach. This is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. My friends, if you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, do me a favor, soar with the seagulls, share it through your social media, share it through your channels at work, at home, at school, wherever you may be uh, hanging out and sharing the good news. There's an awful lot of negativity in the marketplace, but when you have a guy like Richard Bach who reminds the rest of us that we can't soar, that we don't have to fly like everybody else, that, that, that really greatness and significance and humility is demanded and invited into all of our lives. Uh, what a great example. We try to bring you great guests like this so that we, all of us, can choose to soar in whatever area of life we seek. So that's that's cool news today. If you want to learn more about Richard, if you want to learn more about our podcast or my book, On Fire, our videos, our blogs, our work, our community, check us out at JohnO'LearyInspires.com. Again, it is JohnO'LearyInspires.com. I love hanging out with you. I love soaring with you. So my friends, thank you for this opportunity of, of, of being with you in this movement for this time. I loved it. And until next time, this is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired.